Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Dr. Eli Karam back with you on another installment of the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be with you and have a very important topic today, but one in the hustle bustle of whether you're busy maintaining a a private practice or you're a student or you're a preclinical fellow on the way to licensure. Our biggest goals are just thinking about us, not necessarily the larger profession in general. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be an advocate, an advocate for MFT, uh, an advocate for your profession, and no one better to do that and talk to about advocacy than Dr. Ben Caldwell, uh, an emerging leader in our field and someone, whether you're in California or you're a member of the AMFT, you have been influenced by his work. Ben is a PsyD and an LMFT. He serves on the faculty for California State University, Northridge, and the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. He's the author of five books, including Basics of California Laws for LMFTs, LPCCs, and LCSWs, which is now in its fourth edition, and one that, if you haven't read, is really a must-read for everybody in our profession. It's called Saving Psychotherapy, and we'll talk about that today. Ben, in his role as the chair of the Legislative and Advocacy Committee for the California Division of AMFT, helped write the language for California's first-in-the-nation ban on reparative therapy for minors. He led the successful effort to retitle MFT interns as associates and was instrumental in easing the pathway to licensure for MFT interns. For his advocacy work, he was awarded the AAMFT Divisional Contribution Award in 2013. He maintains a private practice in Los Angeles. All right, I am pleased to be joined today on the AAMFT podcast by Dr. Ben Caldwell. And uh, Ben, I like to think of you as one of the emerging voices, uh, kind of a talking about macro issues in a really micro profession, if if you know what I mean. So if if you've never heard Ben speak or talk, I guarantee you, you've read one of his uh, many books or uh, publications, many through the AMFT. So, and we're going to talk about that today. But the first question we always have, Ben, uh, for our guest on the show is, what got you interested in the MFT profession to start with? Your kind of origin story, if you will. Please tell us. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for for joining uh, joining me, inviting me here today. I, I appreciate the opportunity to share some of this stuff. Um, so the way I got into family therapy, you know, a few of us sort of throw darts at a dartboard to choose our profession when we're going to become therapists. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. I was about two years old. And uh, partly as a result of that, I grew up with this tremendous curiosity uh, about couple relationships in particular. And kind of followed that curiosity to a, a psych major in college and then studying family therapy as a graduate student uh, with the hope and the plan to ultimately specialize in doing couple work. And that's what I did. Um, I, uh, I learned emotionally focused therapy as well as I could. Um, I've been practicing using that model for years. Um, I will say that through my own therapy and through my own just sort of personal growth, um, the, the nature of my curiosity and my interest in couples has shifted and changed over time. Um, it's not it's not as personal to me now as it once was in terms of sort of my own uh, particular family stuff. Um, now I, I like to think of it as sort of coming from a, a healthier place um, of just really wanting to 
help couples who are in distress to uh, function more fully, be happier in their relationships, if they have kids, to be a, a better, uh, you know, sort of home base for their kids. And you know, it, it keeps me very well motivated in the work. Uh, and kind of the evolution of your career, you have been, as you said, at the very grassroots level of frontline clinician. clinician. You have been a tenured professor. Uh, now you've shifted on to another part of your career. Can you kind of talk about your evolution that got you into these more, uh, really the focus of our talk today is being informed, uh, advocacy issues, uh, and, and you've certainly, that has been a big part of your career, including, you know, your forays into to law and ethics and things like that. Talk about this later phases of your career. Sure. So after I completed my doctorate, I started teaching for Alliance International University um, and had a really wonderful experience there. Great colleagues, great students, um, and the opportunity to do some research that really interested me. Um, and one of the courses that I was assigned at Alliant was law and ethics. I, I needed to teach our uh, master students uh, about uh, state law and about professional ethics. And it's interesting because at the same time that I was starting to teach that class, I was also trying to get involved in what was happening in California. And so these two things sort of happened around the same time. One was that I was getting involved with the California division of AMFT, and I had gotten elected to the division's elections committee. And so there was a retreat for that in January or February or something, and you know, we're getting to know everybody who's involved in the division. And the person who was at the time heading up our advocacy committee was going to be stepping down. And so this question came up of, all right, well, who would like to be involved in that committee? And I kind of put my hand up and said, well, I, I know nothing at all about advocacy, but I'm going to be in Sacramento, and I would love to help our profession if I can. So uh, sure, I'd be happy to, to get involved. Uh, and Olivia Lowy, who was our uh, division executive director, said, great, we're going to make you the chair. <laughs> and so that... Uh, that was my be careful form. what you ask for, right? Exactly. That was my my launching into advocacy work, um, and at around the same time, I was teaching law and ethics, and so in that context, in the teaching context, I was actually getting really frustrated because there's an awful lot of state law for people to know in California. It's, we, we love to put everything in statute and, you know, licensure bills here can run 40 or 50 pages. Um, it's, there's just a lot to know. And I was spending so much time teaching people the letter of the law in classes that I didn't feel like we were having kind of good, interesting, worthwhile discussions about why is that rule the way that it is? And if we don't like it, how do we change it? Um, you know, the kinds of things that I was able to start doing kind of in that advocacy world. So um, to resolve my frustration in teaching classes, uh, I wrote this book about California law that sort of became a textbook and allowed us to you know, read that stuff at home and then come to class to have these really rich, interesting discussions about advocacy, about changing the rules that sort of govern our profession in the same way that we would change the rules that govern a family. Um, and in the course of my advocacy work with the California Division of AMFT, I'm working on doing exactly that through the legislature, through, you know, the various uh, places in which, you know, you sort of serve an advocacy role. Um, so I, that really led me more into uh, the, the advocacy world, the legislative world, the policy world. Um, I really enjoyed getting to know all that I've gotten to know there. Um, and that led me to sort of this, this big picture perspective on our profession and, and what happens within it and how we bring people up within the profession. Um, not all of that picture is good. Um, and I know that's, that's sort of where you're headed. But in, in, terms of, um, in terms of sort of my own evolution, um, a lot of what, what drew me to where I am now was teaching law and ethics and also sort of getting involved in, in division advocacy because I put my hand up and said, well, sure, I'll help if I can. The job description at MFT is marriage and family therapist in the title. And I think a lot of people like you and me get into the profession because we have a personal connection. And then you find out in your scenario because of the frustration you had both 
with the minutia in California and also in the fact that, okay, if you were going to teach this class, you wanted materials and in discussions and things that would actually be helpful uh, to learning. So part of it was you're stepping up and volunteering and you're also frustration with the current process. But if I'm a student, as many, you know, there are, uh, many people will listen to this podcast, but we have a lot of current students in accredited programs you know, many in the state of California. We also have a lot of preclinical fellows working on licensure, and they care about the practice of therapy. But why would you say, why, if you're a, a young professional, why is advocacy important? And if, if I'm a student or a young professional, why should I care about that in my skill set, so to speak? Hey, you. Yes, you. We have an important message from the Elections Council. Are you interested in learning more about open leadership positions within AAMFT? Well, the call for nominations is now open. This is your opportunity to shape our governance and organization by nominating members for open AMFT positions. Open positions for the 2021 election are President, Secretary, Board of Directors, Elections Council, and COAMFT. You can nominate for as many positions as you wish. The Elections Council is looking for nominations to continuously strengthen AMFT governance. We encourage you in 2019 to selectively consider members who you believe will work hard in advancing the profession and association through leadership in AMFT governance. For more details on eligibility, term lengths, and to download the nominations form, please visit aamft.org. If you have any questions, please email the Elections Council at exec at amft.org. That's E-X-E-C at A-A-M-F-T dot org. Well, bluntly, as you go on through your career, you want to have a profession that you can remain connected to. And, you know, there are meaningful Threats is maybe too strong of a word, but meaningful risks to our profession's continued um, success, and even uh, yeah, I don't want, don't want to fear monger here, but in in some senses, continued existence. Um, yeah, at the macro level, there's sort of this ongoing debate about whether family therapy should be an independent discipline or whether it should sort of be subsumed as a uh, as a, a form of counseling, um, and even brought in under counselor licensure. Um, that really worries me as an MFT, as somebody who was was brought up in the profession with this idea that we really are a, a distinct field. We've got our own history. We've got our own skill set, our own knowledge base. And we, quite frankly, think about things. Our philosophical perspective on treatment is quite different from what counselors bring to the table. And what counselors bring is tremendously, tremendously valuable. It's just different. We're, we're not the same. And so I worry about the systemic perspective um, sort of being um, demoted, uh, losing importance over time. Um, and I, I can even point to ways in which I, I think that's sort of happening right now. Just in terms of the, the importance of the, the kind of big picture awareness of um, what's happening in the profession, yeah, like I said, I, I want people to have a profession that they can uh, continue to identify with and hang on to as a way of um, you know, not just working, but also identifying who we are and how that makes us different from, you know, the other therapists down the block, down the street, down the hall, uh, etc. Um, in terms of saving psychotherapy, um, so I was teaching at Alliant and I took a sabbatical for a semester, uh, or actually for a year, to um, largely write this book that uh, I, I had gotten disturbed about a handful of things in the profession, but it was it was a sort of uninformed disturbance. It was concern without a tremendous amount of information. And I wanted to know really where are we, not just MFTs, but psychotherapists in general, where are we in terms of the advancement, the, the success of our work? Um, where are we in terms of you know, reaching the public, having people understand what it is that we do, how well it works, why it matters, etc.? And so uh, I spent the better part of a year doing more research on that topic and trying to figure out, you know, do people like us, trust us, know us, etc. And learned a lot of things that um, I think should give all of us some pause. And I would put those sort of in two 
two buckets really. One is the clinical stuff, which uh, Scott Miller presented at the last Evolution of Psychotherapy conference and summed it up really nicely by talking about one particular study where participants were asked about their experiences talking about emotional problems with friends, doctors, therapists, and psychics. And the participants were asked basically, well, which did you have the best experience with? And people liked psychics the best. Yeah. And it was it's fascinating, but with Miller's explanation, this, this made great sense. A psychic will give you direct advice without challenging your worldview. And for a therapist, it's basically the exact opposite of that. We often will refuse to give direct advice, something that I actually think we, we should do more of, and that goes along with family therapy in particular. But we will also directly challenge your worldview. And so it, it makes some sense that people don't necessarily experience therapy as uh, pleasant or desirable. They don't like us. Going to the element of trust, though, and this cuts a little bit deeper, I think, a lot of the public doesn't trust us. When people are asked why they don't go see a therapist when they know they have some kind of a mental or emotional problem, sure, there's stigma, particularly for uh, minority communities. I understand that. Um, But stigma is not the... um, you know, 800-pound bear that it is sometimes made out to be. Um, Stigma is usually at the bottom of the list when people are asked why they didn't seek out a therapist when they they knew they had something going on. What people put much, much earlier on their list, um, they put cost, of course, as you might expect, and they put not believing that they could find a therapist that they would like and trust. And in some cases, even having tried to find an ex- a therapist that they would like and trust and not having had a good experience with it. So uh, people don't like us. People don't trust us uh, as much as they should. And a good part of that, I think, is on us. I'm not sure that we've made, we collectively, we as family therapists, we as psychotherapists writ large, I'm not sure that we have made our case to the public about what it is that we stand for, how well what we do works, and why it's different. Uh, why it's different from going and getting a pill from your doctor, uh, why it is uh, more valuable, why the you know the proposition of going to therapy and doing hard work uh, in a therapeutic process should be more desirable than going and taking a pill every day. Um, I don't think we've made that case very well. I think uh, in in the larger um, sort of social landscape, a lot of us as therapists sort of just presume that the public should know that therapy is a good thing and know what it is and how it works and why it's valuable. And people don't necessarily know that. On a more individual level, I don't know that we do a good job of making the case as individual therapists of what we stand for. Um, And even within the individual professions, this is true. So AAMFT, we do couple and family therapy. But there's nothing in our code of ethics, uh, particularly, that makes us more family-friendly than any other mental health discipline. It's tough to point to something that family therapists do that other forms of therapists either can't or don't do, other than we think systemically and then having to explain what that means. But in terms of what we stand for and what we're aiming to achieve, I don't know that we make that case. In fact, you know, so many of us were brought up in a sort of psychoanalytic or, or object relations uh, kind of tradition, especially here in California, that a lot of therapists believe that you should not make your values uh, clear to your clients. You, you should be purposefully vague about what it is that you individually care about and stand for. And that's fine and good. That's got a theoretical basis to it. But man, that makes it hard for your clients to trust you. Um, anyway, that's the clinical stuff. That's that's the clinical bucket. Then you've got this whole other sort of professional uh, bucket of concerns, where you've got you know states that uh, have looked at contracting their licensing boards over the past few years. You've got that philosophical debate that I mentioned about whether MFT actually just belongs as kind of a subset of counseling. 
Um, you know, you have these fights for survival um, that are not really working to advance the profession, but you know, we're trying to keep short up where we are uh, and, and not fall back. And that's not a great position for any professional group to be in. So what do we do? These two, the, the, like you said, the clinical bucket and then the professional bucket, what are the antidotes uh, to these problems that we have? So in the clinical bucket, uh, one of the things I talk about in saving psychotherapy is the importance of making your own values really clear to your clients, being transparent, uh, not only about this is who I am and what I stand for and what I'm trying to achieve uh, in therapy, but also how is that different from another therapist you might go see? Why am I a family therapist as opposed to a different kind of therapist? Um, I know so many therapists who their, their marketing amounts to, I will provide you a safe space where we can hold hands and journey down the beach together as you explore your personal growth and blah, 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 blah. Nothing at all that tells a prospective client anything beyond, I am a therapist. Which is fine and good, but then, you know, why should that prospective client pick you as opposed to somebody who's cheaper or takes a different insurance or whatever else? And maybe more to the point, how do they trust you? You know, if if I'm a client who is uh, considering going to therapy because I'm contemplating divorce, I really want to know that the therapist I choose isn't going to judge me for contemplating divorce and I want to know about how they're going to try to push me. Now, that's that can cut in both directions, right? Plenty of clients will want a therapist who will take a more passive, receptive role, be kind of a sounding board, let me talk through my own thought process about a divorce, while other prospective clients will want that therapist who will actively challenge them, who will say, hey, man, this doesn't line up with the kind of person you are trying to be in the world. Either of those perspectives is fine and good, and either of those perspectives is going to have a lot of appeal to a lot of prospective clients. But what most clients get right now is a whole bunch of uh, therapist websites and profiles on psychology today, et cetera, et cetera, where they have no idea what kind of therapist they're going to get, what what the therapist's values or stance on this kind of right. thing Right. It, it looks generic. Yeah whether they're going to be active or passive or anything else. So the, the first thing that we, we really need to do, and this is on an individual basis, is make our own values clear. You know, let it be clear to clients about not just I am a therapist, but here's what makes me different. Here's why you should come see me and maybe even pay more money to come see me versus the other therapist that's you know down the hall, down the street. Whatever. And if you're an MFT, not just assuming the general public knows what that means. Probably of the big five mental health disciplines, MFT probably has the, the least face validity or, or people, you know, there's some people that still think, you know, oh, marriage and family therapists only see couples and families versus no, it's a systemic way of working. MFTs, in fact, you know, in a, a most recent national study, 50% of their practice are individuals. It's a way of working with clients. So it's, it's developing a way to differentiate the individual therapist, but also the profession. Now, you and I are both educators. How, let's distill this down. What does this mean for training programs? How, how do we get people started at this, you know, from the beginning as far as, you know, learning how to kind of uh, uh, differentiate who they are and what the profession is? Well, I'll tell you, in my own experience learning family therapy, I went to a very good program. I, I went to uh, what is now Alliance International University in San Diego. I had great faculty, um, really good mentors along the way. And, um, you know, I learned a ton about family therapy. I didn't necessarily learn where family fit where family therapy fit into uh, the larger context of various forms of helping, various forms of psychotherapy. What what clearly distinguished us from clinical social workers um, or the historical context in which the different mental health professions emerged? I think it's actually really helpful for students to know that, to understand the different perspectives that the different mental health professions bring. And I think some programs do a, a really good job of educating about that, and others could probably do a, a better job about that. Um, certainly as uh, trainers, it ought to be on our minds that 
what you just said, that so many family therapists are primarily treating individuals. And hopefully they're treating individuals with a systemic framework, but do those clients even know what that means? Have we taught our students uh, not just what systemic thinking is, but actually how to talk about it in a way that clients will understand? Um, and I think it's, it's a tough thing. Yeah, I have an assignment in um, the capstone course and in my co-empty program with it's kind of like an elevator speech like don't use jargon but distill down kind of who you are what you're about your 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 personal theory of change in kind of two minutes or less and also what you do or your, your profession's way of looking at the world but if they can't first they meaning a student or a young professional if they can't understand it or they don't think about it first it's very hard to explain it to clients so just an exercise like that can be very helpful um to me yeah, i love that assignment That's yeah great. what do you think as far as the larger kind of advocacy piece as far as what each person can do uh, because part of the saving psychotherapy, if we rely on it just to take it as a given that MFT will always be here in a standalone profession, uh, there's no guarantees with that. What can, in addition to some of these things you've already said, what can professionals, maybe some that have already been out in the field, because we'll have people listen to this podcast that their students are uh, preclinical fellows, but we'll also have very senior uh, clinicians that have not really thought about some of the things you're saying. They've been in this myopic world of getting their clients and building their own practice and not thinking about these more macro issues. What can more experienced people do to make a difference in this work? Well, I'll, I'll answer that kind of first by being a, a little bit pithy, and I'm sorry about that, but um, you individually have a great deal more power to create change for the profession than you probably think you do. Um, I think each of us knows uh, about the power that we have to facilitate change in families. Well, making change on larger policy levels works exactly the same way. It's a matter of identifying the right mechanism of change and utilizing that mechanism of change to facilitate the kind of change that you want. Uh, you don't have to be trained in policy work. You don't have to be uh, a lobbyist. Um, I have no training in any of that kind of stuff. I, I, I know nothing about uh, about some of the, the policy and legal stuff that I've been heavily involved in and, frankly, pretty successful at changing. Yeah, you're now and considered I, an expert in, right? Yeah, exactly. And I... I approach that with a lot of humility because to this day, I don't feel like an expert in it. I just feel like somebody who's hung around long enough to start be called, start being called an expert in it. And a good example of this. So um, a couple of years ago, it had, it had been the case in California for a while that if you had completed your master's degree and you were working toward licensure, you were called an MFT intern. And nobody knew really from the public what that title meant. Um, you know, the common understanding of intern is somebody who goes and gets coffee for the people doing the real work, right? So um, if you're a client or an employer or somebody who doesn't know about kind of the career ladder for family therapists in California, um, you might think that an intern is somebody who's still in school, who's very, very green. And you wouldn't realize that, no, these are people who have completed graduate degrees and often have years of experience above that, uh, being very successful with the individuals, couples, and families that they've treated. Well, this was causing a whole lot of problems. Um, one of the big problems that we've had, and I know it's not limited to California, but it's, it's particularly um, serious here, is that we have an awful lot of people who were working toward licensure who were employed, and I put that in air quotes, in unpaid positions. Um, even sometimes in for-profit companies where it's it's a pretty clear violation of the law to do that. And I don't think you had a lot of employers who were mustache-twirling villains. I think you have a number of people who misunderstood what that title of intern meant and thought that, okay, if this person is an intern, I can bring them in in an unpaid internship. And so that title was causing that particular problem, uh, but also just a number of other logistical problems, uh, comparative problems with uh, social work associates who are kind of at the same stage, you know, completed a graduate degree, not yet licensed, but to have one profession called interns and another called associates was very strange. So um, I put together a presentation on the title to go ask our licensing board, hey, would you consider changing this? Now, our licensing board in California currently governs more than 100,000 licensed and registered 
therapists. Uh, it's a, a huge bureaucracy. Um, but all their meetings are open to the public. You can get on the agenda just by sending them an email and saying, hey, I've got this issue I'd like to talk about. I'd been to the meetings long enough that I knew some of the people involved and, and I had their trust. So I go and I make this presentation to the board saying, would you consider changing our title for pre-licensed MFTs from intern to something else. And the suggestion I had was associate just to match social workers, but uh, really to anything other than intern to sort of clear up some of these uh, employment issues that that title was creating. You can see my presentation on YouTube. It's not good. Like, I'm, I like to think I'm a pretty good presenter, at least some of the time. This was not my best work. But from a half hour or so presentation, the board kicked it around for a while. They, they uh, sent it to their policy committee, which came back with a recommendation. So, I mean, there's some element of sort of seeing this through. But it was ultimately the board itself that ran the legislation to change the title from intern to associate. It was this huge change. And, you know, people who are on the path to licensure were uh, very celebratory and grateful. And, and rightly so. I think this is a very, very positive change. It does seem to be helping in a whole bunch of different ways related to the employment of, of pre-licensed therapists. But it did not take that much work. It really just took somebody calling the issue to the board's attention in a way that said, hey, here's a problem, it's solvable, here's a potential solution that would make things better for the field, has no negative impact on the public, if anything probably helps the public to understand various levels of, of registration and licensure because it creates parallel tracks, and the board took it from there. Um, that was a, a big change that happened really pretty easily. Um, and it's not the only one I've done that's that's been like that. And it's not because I'm particularly good at this. It's, it's a matter of finding the right uh, mechanism of change and, and utilizing that mechanism. And that's something that I learned how to do through my family therapy training. Yeah, it's isomorphic. It's a parallel process, as we say. That is a, a very powerful example how one person created uh, a large change on a, on a whole system. Another thing I really feel that you you are very humble, but you're excellent in is distilling down not only what you need to do on the road to licensure, but complex, you know, especially in California with all, all these statutes and laws, very complex things into workable processes for young therapists. And when I think of psychotherapynotes.com, there, there's so much really good information. And when I say good information, it's like practical stuff that will help you not only on the road to licensure, just be a better therapist in general. Reminder, reminders of the, the differences that make a difference, so to speak. Tell, uh, tell us what a user can expect after visiting Psychotherapy Notes. And I've never asked you, what was the, what was the origin for the idea of, of putting that site together? Well, so the the blog Psychotherapy Notes, and I appreciate the, the compliment here, you're very kind, um, that started more than 10 years ago now. Um, so I would have been uh, just a little bit out of my doctoral degree and wanting to, really just wanting to connect with other professionals and, and kind of share information, share what I was learning through my own experiences in, in California in division leadership and, uh, you know, through advocacy work. And I didn't really see at the time any other uh, websites or blogs or anything that were sharing the, the kinds of information that I wanted to be able to share. And so it really started out just as an opportunity to put stuff out into the world and see whether anybody cared, frankly. Um, and we now have more than 300 articles up there. Uh, it's all free. It's all um, you know, open to the public. And we've got uh, stuff about certainly California law, which is where I, uh, where I am, but we've got stuff about professional issues that apply across professions, that apply all over the country. Um, I'm working on some stuff right now about the uh, ECCPP2 that's being developed for psychologists that is pretty controversial. Um, you know, we've had some issues here in California with our own uh, clinical exam for MFT licensure. So that's there. But we also have stuff that's just about clinical practice. And uh, I'm thinking of a recent post uh, I just read, uh, just very practical, three books every couple therapists should read. And, and, and to me, it's just like a collection of resources really by uh, 
thoughtful. You have a number of bloggers on there. You contribute obviously regularly and it's, it's a kind of one-stop resource for everybody uh, looking for ways to improve their practice and navigate uh, the road to licensure. One of my, because you're also kind of known for that, not just in California, nationwide, what do you think are the biggest roadblocks, Ben, on the roadblock to license on the on the road to licensure because we have a lot of students they leave the furtive nest of their co-empty program they're so excited about MFT and then they're maybe working in a setting where there's not other MFTs and they kind of lose that professional identity or they get stymied on the road to licensure what are the biggest hurdles do you think well bluntly I think the biggest hurdle is money I think that you know once you graduate and you are supposed to start repaying those student loans a lot of people can't do it. And the, the money that you're going to make uh, between graduation and licensure, depending on you know, where you're located, uh, might be really tough to make a living off of. And it's, you know, it's one thing if you have uh, a financially supportive family that can help you along the way, um, but you're talking about probably at least a couple of years between graduation and licensure. And so what a lot of people wind up doing, and I don't blame them, is they take a job that provides them money to pay the rent, and at least at that time, they don't care that much about whether their professional identity is being supported. They care about being able to put food on the table and pay the rent. And what winds up happening then is you come out of this graduate school experience with a, a very pure uh, and very recently developed professional identity that then if you go into a clinic setting or some of the other settings that, that don't have other MFTs around, that professional identity becomes deprioritized. It becomes less valuable to the clinician on the way to licensure. And so I, I really see a lot of my own work and a lot of the work uh, of our profession as supporting uh, employment, uh, supporting various ways to make sure that that time between graduation and licensure isn't a time where we are losing good people over financial concerns. Um, there was a study in California a few years ago that looked at uh, those folks who uh, complete their graduate degrees, register with the state, uh, but then never make it to licensure, and uh, looked at kind of the, the risks along the way. And it turned out that almost a third of the people who initially registered with the state after graduation never even took the licensing exam. That's a tremendous amount of people, many of whom are well-qualified, well-skilled, would want to be therapists and couldn't make it through often because of financial considerations, not because of anything about, you know, what kind of a therapist they were. So I really think money is probably the biggest concern there. Um, and that's the first place that I look. There are some other risks to professional identity along the way as well. Obviously, if you're not surrounded by other MFTs, you're going to have a hard time sort of maintaining that identity. You have to have a, a firm spine to be able to stand up to people and say, actually, I think that what's happening here is, uh, from a systemic perspective, this, as opposed to the kind of working hypothesis that you have put forward. We need to be able to stand up to uh, other perspectives, other ways of working in a way that is appropriate, respectful, professional, and all that, but also gives voice to a systemic perspective. And I think if you're a new professional and you're working with people who have been in the field for a long time, that can be a real challenge. Um, so it's I want to include that part, but also just bluntly, I think the biggest thing is dollars. Belonging to something like the AMFT, especially now um, with the changes in our bylaws and, and these uh, topical interest groups, you choosing what you were interested in and your dollars going to, to good use. But yeah, people are limited in their dollars and they have to see value in belonging. What do you think, in addition to being a part of something like AMFT or listening to a podcast like this, what should an MFT do to stay up to date with current trends and developments once they leave that furtive nest of graduate school? Well, certainly it's important to be a member of your professional organization and not just to be a passive member, but to actually make your voice heard. You know, when when therapists are uh, struggling in various ways in the profession, whether whether clinically, financially, um, or, or in whatever other way, often we don't know about it as an association. And I, I mean you, me, other other leaders in the association, we don't necessarily know unless people tell us. 
and they say, hey, there's this thing going on, there's a kind of systemic issue that we could use some help with. Um, you know, sometimes the association doesn't act on things like that, not because they don't want to, but because they simply don't know. So it's really important to uh, not just be a passive member, but to make your voice heard. And then beyond that, in terms of staying up to date, I, I want people to be um, not just voracious readers of anything they can find that's that's current and online, um, but also uh, voracious communicators. There are some wonderful uh, Facebook groups for therapists out there right now that, that can really connect MFTs very well um, as a distinct professional group and also that can connect us with other professional colleagues in ways that are, are really, really useful. Um, going to conferences, actually seeing people in person. I've loved my experiences at the AMFT conference in particular for the opportunities it has provided me to meet and talk with the people who are kind of my professional heroes. I had the chance to talk with uh, Scott Miller at the last Evolution Conference, and you know he was so nice and warm and friendly when, when we met. Um, and it's, it's always nice when you uh, read somebody's work, you get a lot of respect for them based on that, and then you meet them in person, and it turns out, turns out that they are every bit as wonderful and knowledgeable and kind in person as you had sort of projected them as being based on your writing. Um, those opportunities are really, really valuable. You're also one of those guys, if uh, someone approaches you at an AMFT conference, you you will be happy to give them time and, and to talk with them. And I, I really believe the reason, again, I'm having you on the podcast because you are an emerging leader and, and somebody, whether you chose, it's funny hearing your story this hour, this kind of organic pathway you've been on to doing something as this emerging leader in the field now of policy and advocacy. So that leads me to kind of my last question is a two-parter. It's like you and I have both been in this profession about the same amount of time, a little short of two decades. And I'm curious what you think the biggest changes uh, have been in those two decades and emerging trends, what we will be talking about five, ten years down the line, and then what you want the next part of your career to look like. Well, wow. all right. So in terms of the biggest changes that I've seen um, – this is, I, I would love to put a more positive spin on this. It's going to sound pretty negative, but I, I'm going to try to bring it back here at the end. Um, I'm, I'm seeing our training requirements continue to grow. So um, you know, there's been this uh, change from, you know, over time it was a 36-unit master's degree and then it became 48 and now it's 60. Um, there is no evidence anywhere that therapists are more effective with 60-unit degrees than they were at 36. So that just adds a tremendous amount of, of time and expense and uh, you know we're not necessarily training people in the things that are going to make them most effective. Um, and then you're seeing states that didn't already have them implement these continuing education requirements uh, where it's a similar problem, right? So of course we want people to be accountable, we want people to continue to keep their knowledge up to date, that's all fine and good. But there is remarkably little scientific evidence uh, in support of continuing education as facilitating uh, any kind of clinical effectiveness. So one of the changes that I'm seeing over time, I think, is a, a move toward maybe what gives the appearance of effectiveness and public protection rather than the actuality of it. Um, and that's troubling to me just because a lot of the stuff that we are requiring people to do to become therapists is so expensive. I don't want us to become a profession, not just MFTs, but, but therapists in general, to become a profession by and for the wealthy. And when you talk about new and additional training requirements, that is some of the impact that it has, is that it starts to uh, make it more difficult to enter into the world of therapy if you're right. not independently It increases barriers instead of eliminating them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And quite frankly, the, the barrier to entry in this profession should be skill and not your wallet. And right now, a lot of it is the other way around. So uh, in terms of trends, that's that's one that uh, I'm seeing that bothers me and I think is, is very much worth fighting against. Another trend that I think is very positive, and this is one that uh, you know I hope continues in the years ahead, um, I'm seeing a lot of newer therapists who are, in a variety of ways, um, taking on individual responsibility. 
um, for you know setting their own course and their practices, but also taking on some individual responsibility for how the field is doing overall. So I'm watching as uh, you know people like Ernesto Segismundo here in California is um, you know he's developing uh, continuing education retreats that are uh, in Hawaii and look spectacular, but also are uh, I know Ernesto I know how committed he is to making sure that those retreats are not just about having your butt in a chair to get CE hours, but are really about um, you know making people more effective in the work that they do and being really inspiring and motivational. Um, yeah, I'm seeing people who are doing various other entrepreneurial things, you know, podcasting as one example, um, you know, taking the role of mentor to uh, other early career clinicians. All of these steps that people are taking to to really hold some individual responsibility, take a leadership role, that is very heartening to me. You know, that we have that many people who are entering into the profession who understand that you can't just trust somebody else to drive the ship. That actually your voice is necessary, uh, both for you individually to go where you want to go in your career, but also for all of us collectively to be able to do what we want to do collectively in terms of how we are known and recognized in, in the public sphere. So that's a very heartening kind of trend uh, for me. In terms of my own career and kind of where I'm headed, um, so I had been teaching full-time for Alliant for uh, many years. I have uh, left that position, uh, but I'm still teaching uh, as adjunct faculty for Cal State Northridge and for a place called the Wright Institute up in Berkeley. Both are fantastic, fantastic programs. Uh, but I really am wanting to further um, kind of my my goals in terms of how I impact our larger professional world. And there are a couple of ways that I'm doing that. And one is actually through trying to make continuing education better. Um, I think uh, they're an affinity partner for AMFT, so you've probably heard about Simple Practice. Uh, Simple Practice is developing this program called Simple Practice Learning um, that is doing some continuing education stuff that um, I'm really, really excited to be a part of. Um, uh, it's uh, the way that continuing education often goes right now is it's kind of a race to the bottom in terms of how little can you spend and how few minutes can you do to get you know several hours done. Uh, simple practice is really wanting to make continuing education something that is based on quality, where the cream rises to the top. I love that. The other thing that I'm trying to do to make it a little bit easier for people to get from pre-licensed to licensed is uh, through exam prep stuff. And this sounds very commercial at first, and you know, part of it is uh, that I really like writing, so it's good to, to distill this information and share it and all that. Um, but part of this is also my own sense of mission about I see how test prep companies are quite often exploiting the anxiety that people feel as they approach their tests, and they're charging hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and providing uh, materials and programs that are overkill compared to what most people need. So uh, what my company has done is really made a point of trying to develop some exam prep materials that are low cost and going to stay that way, um, and, and making it as easy and simple as possible to uh, organize the information that you're going to need to get through to licensure. So uh, I'm also still tremendously involved in advocacy work. Um, I, I'm excited about some of the possibilities that are here in California and also kind of around the country for the years ahead. Would love to see us get into Medicare. I know that's been on the board for a while. Um, I could go on. But uh, as you can see, I keep busy. Yes, you, there's not a lazy bone in your body. So I uh, thank you so much for your time and not only for your time today, but for what you have done uh, as an advocate for our profession of, of marriage and family therapy. You know, we've talked about uh, a lot of your publications today. Uh, if somebody, you are very accessible. If somebody wants to correspond with you that hears this podcast directly, what's the easiest way to do that, Ben? Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm also, uh, if you want to email me, ben at bencaldwell.com. I am not hard to find. Thank you so much, my friend. And I look forward to, you know, you, so much stuff today. We could, could do even uh, more installments and maybe we will in the future. Uh, and uh, I look forward to you, to speaking to you again. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Eli. Wait, before you go, have you heard about the AAMFT and Research and Education Foundation Awards? 
Our awards committee would like to remind you that the AMFT and Foundation Awards are a great way to be recognized for your contributions to the field of marriage and family therapy. Each year, AMFT and the Research and Education Foundation honor members for their unique contributions to MFT research and practice. A few of the awards offered are the Outstanding Contribution to Marriage and Family Therapy, Outstanding Volunteer Service, Outstanding Research Publication, Master's Thesis and Dissertation, and Diversity Scholarship for Emerging Leaders. Applications are now open. Please visit AAMFT.org to see if you, or someone you know, are eligible for any of the AMFT or Foundation Awards. All award recipients will have their fees waived to attend the 2020 Annual Conference in Orlando, Florida. If you have any questions, please email the Awards Committee at awards at AAMFT.org. Thanks again to Dr. Ben Caldwell. I learned so much, the importance of advocacy. And it's up to us if MFT... We want it to continue existing as a standalone profession to not only be passionate about what we do in the room, but also out of the room and how we let others know about what we do as a profession and what it means to be a systemic therapist. For all things Ben Caldwell, go to bencaldwell.com. You can also check out the great psychotherapynotes.com, as I was mentioning during the interview. Uh, ben and his contributors regularly update this. Uh, currently, there is an entry called Prologue, a poem for new grad students. Uh, so there's, there's lots of great uh, resources, tips, and the best part about it, it's all completely free, psychotherapynotes.com. So interesting hearing more about the topics that Ben talked about today, and you also need some continuing education credits. We have you covered there. Please go to aamft.org. Under the Enhanced Knowledge tab, you scroll down to the very first thing, Online Education and Training, and there you'll see AMFT's online CEU platform called Tenio. It's a great resource, and many of our guests on the podcast you can also find on Tenio. Right now, currently, uh, you can find Ben Caldwell offerings. These are just a few of them. The Role of Expertise, Early Career Family Therapist. The Life Cycle of the Treatment Record. Professional Wills, Overview of Law and Ethics, and How Technology Will Radically Change MFT's Future. Tenio, a great resource, a way to dig deeper, get your continuing education credits, all brought to you by AAMFT. As always, I love bringing the podcast to you. We'd love to hear from you. Listener feedback is very important. Easy way to get a hold of me. It's Info at elikaram.com. You can get a hold of the AMFT at communications at aamft.org. Follow us on Twitter. The hashtag is AAMFT Podcast. The handle at the AMFT. My handle is at Dr. Eli Lai. Please, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, like, so subscribe like Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. That really does help us getting up there uh, in the field of mental health podcasts. As always, until next time, stay systemic, my friends.